Hi everyone, it's good to be with you. We're going to read the Bible in a moment, um, which uh, if you have, well, not surprisingly, it's going to be uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 we're going to look at, and we'll read chapter 1 in a minute. Uh, I'll just give you a bit of a framework for how I'm going to do uh, this over the next couple of days. First session and the fourth session, I'll do, I'll do take a, a chunk from chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll do expository Bible teaching. I'm assuming that's not foreign to you at Bustleton Baptist Church. No, right. And then this, the two sessions in the middle, I want to take a verse or a concept from 1 Corinthians in general and talk about the cultural pressure that we face in light of those things. So what, what is the Bible saying about a specific issue? Or what is this passage in particular, or these passages in, in 1 Corinthians doing about something culturally, a pressure that we're under, or something that we is maybe a blind spot to us as culture. So what I've done in my book is write about um, how we're feeling the cultural pressure as Christians, and I want to look at two issues. So the second and third session will be a little bit of a cultural sort of spotlight and how we respond as Christians to some of the pressures we're under. But first and fourth one will be on chapters 1 and 2. So that's the way we'll go. Um, have your Bibles, it's 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll read the whole of the first chapter and I'll be about 30, 35 minutes and hopefully you'll be finished by 8, so that will be good. Here's God's word. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those who everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says... I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, while another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For instance, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I um, work for City to City, and uh, one of the things about City to City Australia, or City to City, is that cities are places that show up very quickly where you're at. Cities are places that are pressure points, and people move to cities for all sorts of reasons. People move to cities to work, people move to cities to hide themselves. And Tim Keller, who's the head of, uh, Rede- was the head of Redeemer Presbyterian Church and set up the City to City Network, uh, said it's specifically cities that we want to try and reach with the gospel. And we're looking at the good life in this age, because Cities are places you go to wind life up a little bit. You don't go to cities to sort of uh, do less in life. You go to cities to make a name for yourself. And Paul is writing to a city uh, that's very much like a modern-day city. The passage starts, uh, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the church of God that's in Corinth. And uh, it's a city that has got a lot of renown. It's a city where people know what it's like. It's a bit of a... It's a New York, it's a Manhattan part of New York. It's that kind of city. And cities are amazing places where uh, amazing things happen, but they're also where bad things happen as well. Cities are this place, this melting pot of things that are exceptionally good, but also exceptionally bad. Maybe that's why people live in regional towns these days. You saw what happened after COVID, that regional cities, uh, regional towns became quite important. But this is a book, and made into a series called The City and the City. And let me describe you the cities that they're occupied in this book. There are two cities and there's a murder mystery going on in this city where a police officer has to go between both cities to discover the murder mystery. And one city is very grimy, 1950s style, sort of uh, almost looks like an old European city uh, in Eastern Europe in the 1950s. And the other city is a very bright, shiny city, and it looks like Singapore, perhaps. And there's these two cities with uh, different uh, languages, different religions. Uh, One's very secular, actually, and one's very religious, old-style religion. Uh, One's got a a stuttering economy and one's sort of a highlight economy and uh, kicking along. It's It's a new economy. And he has to get a, uh, the cities don't get on well together and he has to get a special permission to go between these two cities. The only thing is, these two cities actually occupy the same geographical footprint. They interweave out with each other so that you could be in one building that belongs to one of the cities called Bezel, and then you could walk out and you have to walk past the building or a government agency of the other city, Ulcoma it's called. You've got this grimy building next to this beautiful building and driving down the middle of the road you've got to stay on your side of the road in your 
you know, 1950s Skoda, while there's other, these other cars, you know, Lamborghinis rushing up the other side of the road. You're not allowed to have any part of the other city. Two cities occupying the same physical geographical footprint with very different values and citizens with very different goals. And you have to have, you know, walk between the two. And there's certain parts of the cities that are called crosshatch. And crosshatch is, is it Beasel, is it Ilcoma? We're not quite sure which city it is. And you have to occupy this space in the city that's very, very different. And so what you get, you get citizens of one city having to live beside citizens of another city. And then in this other section, you sort of merge it a little bit. When it comes to the letter of 1 Corinthians, I think it's a very much a city-to-city -city experience. What you're getting in Corinth is that you've got people who belong, are citizens of a city called the New Age, the heavenly city, yet where do they have to live? They have to live in Corinth. And the problem for the Christians in Corinth is they feel like becoming a Christian has turned them into these 1950s Skoda driving grump, you know, little old ramshackle people. And there's this impressive city called Corinth right on the doorstep. And all the stuff that goes on in Corinth looks very impressive. And the people on the old city of Corinth, looking at these new citizens of the, the new, new Corinth, I suppose, I despise them. They think they're foolish. What are they following this crucified Jesus for? And Paul writes to them at the start and he says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He's writing to someone, to a church of God, he says, in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and the first thing he does is he gives them an identity that is well above what anyone in Corinth would ever give them. He calls them the church of God the house and dwelling of God. And the language of church or house or gathering or all those sorts of things, very religious words in a city like Corinth, which was, had households to the gods all over the place. And Paul comes in and he says, I'll take that. I'll take that term. And then he describes them as to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He's really ramping them up, isn't he? Because when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, I would not start 1 Corinthians like that. I would start, dear scumbags, right? <laughs> dear scumbags. Because as you read the list of things and you don't get very far into 1 Corinthians and you see the problems, he goes, I appeal to you not to have divisions. He doesn't say that because it's an abstract idea. What should I write to the Corinthians today? Perhaps I should write to them that they should not have divisions. No, he has heard it says... In verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have snitched on you. <laughs> they have informed me that there are quarrels among you, church of God, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy people. Perish the thought that Christians who are that would ever have quarrels and splits among them. Yeah, I've never seen it. <laughs> never seen it. So this is a very specific book, letter. It's one of four letters that Paul wrote to the Church of Corinth, and we only have two of them. It's very specific. It's written to the Church of God in Corinth, but it's also written to us. 
Do you notice it says? Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That's the thing about the Bible, isn't it? You come to the Bible and you say, let's see how stinky those Corinthians were. (laughs) And then what starts to happen is the Bible starts to read us, doesn't it? It starts to go, oh, this is to the everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And what we're going to find is that as we unpack, especially as we look tomorrow at some of the issues that are culturally coming up in Corinth, those are the same issues in different format that we face. But I was in Corinth two weeks ago, it's called Sydney, and (laughs) it's true, right? There wasn't a building that did not say this word, pride. Pride. Corinth was a proud city. And you know what the problem with the Corinthian Christians were? They're suddenly the outsiders in the grimy city called Bezel. That's what it feels like. And they're looking at Ulcoma and going, could we have some of that? Can we have some of that? On the Ernst and Young building, it literally had, with no sense of irony, what we need is a world full of pride. We've got one. We don't need a world full of pride because pride is our downfall. And Paul is writing to a proud church, a church that has been seduced by the city it lives in, a church that's been taken over by the things of the old city of Corinth. They are new citizens. And what we unpack as we go through this is that Paul doesn't just divide life between two different cities. As we see in chapter 1, he divides it between two different ages. You belong to a city that's the future, and that's a city of the past. But here's the tension. Two weeks ago in Sydney, when I go to speak at a church and unpack the book of Daniel to them, It doesn't feel like we're the future. The movers and shakers of Sydney don't look at the church and go, you know what, we need more of that in Sydney. They don't say that. We're on the wrong side of history. And Paul's going to unpack that and say, that's not true. That's not true. You're not on the wrong side of history. See, the problem is when we get to this tension that we're experiencing in the world, maybe... We should just, you know, head for the hills, escape from the city and, because we can't be Christian in the tough places. Paul doesn't think that. He says, to those sanctified, set apart, made holy in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. You can do that in Corinth, he's saying. You don't need to buy five acres in the hills, get cyclone chain fencing, bean spams and shotgun and wait for the zombie apocalypse and hide away. You don't need to do that. You can do that there. That's the message we need to say as Christians, that wherever we are, God can do the work of sanctifying a holy people to live for him in that place. Sydney, Melbourne, Bustleton, there will be different pressures. There will be different pressures for us all the time. But it's for us as well. To all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord 
and ours. Got that one. Paul then goes on to say this. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. I love irony. I love irony. And some people don't get irony. You know, the, the American comedian said to the Australian comedian, the, the trouble with you uh, Australians is that you have no sense of irony. And he goes, isn't that you Americans? And he goes, see what I mean? You know. Um, <laughs> Paul brings up an issue that's a huge issue for the Christians in Corinth. Because if you go to Corinth, it's all about philosophy. It's all about being smart. It's all about the comedian on the stage cracking really savvy jokes. It's all about speech and knowledge. And Paul says, I'm going to pull the rug out from under your feet as to what you think speech and all knowledge is. I'm going to show you that you're tapping into trying to be like the Corinthian city, not the people of the new age of God's city. Because you're tapping into the impressive ways that Corinth wants to do speech and knowledge. See, here's the problem. Paul has become an embarrassment to the people in Corinth. Paul has become an embarrassment, and Paul's message has become an embarrassment to the Christians in Corinth because it's just not speechy and knowledgey enough. It's just not impressive enough for where they're living. And so it's not like they want to become, go back to idol worship. That's not what they want to do at all. What they want to do is make this more accessible for, themselves, for other people and more, so that they look a little bit more impressive in the city, so that they don't look like the, the refuse of the city, so they don't look like 1950s you know, Czechoslovakia city. They look bright and shiny. And that's the way it always works. It's never that we go, well, you know what, I'm going to give up the whole Christian thing and I'm going to do what the city says I should do. Now, what we do is we co-opt the values of the city and we implant it onto our gospel framework and say, that'll work. That'll keep us on the inside running with the city and it might even draw people to become Christian. It's a very noble cause. And we see this all the time happening. And, it, you know, years ago, centuries ago, two centuries ago, was the whole move that if... Christianity could just get rid of its, idea, its crazy ideas about miracles and crazy ideas about how creation happened and all those sorts of things. It was just more, more you know, flat-line scientific and rational. People would sign up in droves. People would sign up in droves because it's acceptable to do that. And did people sign up in droves? They did not you'll find that as the gospel is, I guess, drained of its power by this, let's go with what the culture says we should do, the chairs get emptier, the giving gets lower, the age of the congregation goes up and doesn't replace, and the voice of the gospel does not go out from that place. All with a good intention at the start, let's make this Christian thing work for the next generation. What do you possibly think might be the one that is happening in our Western world at the moment? 
if we could just roll over on some of the issues around sexual identity and freedom, the church would be full again. Well, that has happened in mainline denominations around the world since the 60s. And if their strategy was, let's do the sexual revolution at half pace, <laughs> it didn't work. There's something about the tension of living this gospel life that is, it just hits different to the world. And whatever city you're in, there's going to be a, point, be a point of tension. And the point of tension in Corinth was Paul says, actually, all the speech and knowledge you need, you've got in the gospel. And it may not be the kind of speech and knowledge that is impressive to bright, shiny Corinth, but it actually is God's power. The message is God's power. Verse 18, classic verses in this text. Have a look at your Bibles with me if you've got them. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, why does the Corinthian church need the power of God? Because here's a short list I prepared earlier of all the problems they've got. Division. Spiritual pride. Sexual sin. Power struggles, pagan or Greek thinking about the human body, where some people are saying, never get married. And other people are saying, you can do with your bits what you like. Syncretism, idolatry. It's a big issue in Corinth. Social strata. Some Christians are up here because they're wealthy and impressive and some Christians are down here. And wouldn't it be good if we could just have homogenous unit principle church where the rich people go to one church and that'll attract the rich people in Corinth and the poor people go somewhere else and that'll attract them. Lack of love. The chapter that gets read out at every wedding is pointing to the lack of love at Corinth. Church chaos. Wanting everything now. I hope God's grading on a curve, right? Because <laughs> this is bad. Yet Paul starts that letter to God's holy people. <laughs> Sanctified. Because here's the solution to all those things. The solution to spiritual pride is not to go around sort of trying to must be humble and must be humble. The solution to social strata isn't simply a social justice policy. The solution is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, not was. You don't become a Christian with the gospel and then sort of like a rocket ship firing off into space, the gospel bit sort of breaks off and you're floating up there with some other sort of spiritual experience, which is exactly what the Corinthians thought, by the way. Once we've got the icky gospel bit out the way, we can have some 
you know, funky Christian spiritual experiences to get us into the stratosphere of spirituality. And Paul goes, no, the gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. From the day you were saved till, it says, as he says in verse 8, he will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What will do those things for you? I grew up as a Christian very unsure of where I was spiritually because I didn't have a big picture of where the Bible was on these things. And I would go from one spiritual experience or one decisionism issue to the next, thinking maybe that will do it for me. It probably happened here one time at Baptist Youth Camp when I was a kid. Until I realised that what I started in, in the gospel, was the thing that I was going to keep going in. And that the gospel had the power to save me on the day I was saved and bring me to completion at the end. And if you're living in Corinth or Sydney or Melbourne or Bustleton and you feel the pressure, the answer is the gospel. It will keep you to the end. It is God's power. And the message of it sounds foolish to people, but it saves people. And we'll look a little bit more in the fourth session to encourage you a little bit about that. He says, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. And what Paul goes to do here is he draws a line in the ground. And he says, this is what the gospel has done for you. You live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom while you live in Corinth. And it looks messy. And it looks like you're on the wrong side of history. And it looks like there's no way forward for you. And it looks like you're driving a beaten up old Skoda that's pumping you know, exhaust fumes out the back while they're driving a Ferrari, culturally, socially. But you know what? You belong to the future. You belong to a new age. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ has ushered it in. You may have heard the term, get on the right side of history. You may have heard the term that the arc of history is long and it bends towards justice. You may have heard that the centre of history is somehow just ahead of us a little bit, that when we can get our culture the right way and we can be open and free about many different things, that somehow we'll arrive at the centre of history. The centre of history was the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it tipped us from the old age into the age to come beginning, the beginning of a new age. Jesus' resurrection was the start of the new age. It's the first fruits of the new creation. So have a look what Paul says to sort of prick the bubble of their fears about they might be left behind by bright, shiny, swanky Corinth. Where is the wise person, he says? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Now, the hard thing, of course, is that the philosopher of this age might be teaching in the classroom next to you. They haven't disappeared. But what Paul is going to say is that they've been disempowered. (laughs) They belong to the old age. And when the new age starts, their day is done. 
they're just zombies. They're the walking dead. And you might think, you know, I feel that. I feel the fact that, you know, it's not maybe a wise person or a teacher of the law or a philosopher in our age because we don't value those things in the same way that Corinth did. But where is the free person? Where is the impressive person? Where is the person getting somewhere in life of this age? Of this age. Paul just says, they might be around, but they've been superseded by a new age. And then he goes on to say this. It's not like now that wisdom of this age is gone, we just act dumb. Because he says this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are what? Coming to nothing. Do you know what stops you getting angry or despairing as a Christian when you see things go against us culturally or socially or even see the church do stupid things? You put on your glasses of new age glasses and say, oh, now I see how things are. Because without your glasses, it's a bit... I got to Melbourne on Monday. I went out for a run and I took my glasses off and they snapped in half. I was like, I can't see. I can't see a thing without glasses. So the guy said, help, and he glued them together. Coincidentally, two weeks ago, I just booked to get new glasses, and the, I'm a bit late today because they phoned to say they're ready because I've been holding my head like that. For, you know, <laughs> but the minute I put them on today, I went, ah, oh, better. I can see. And Paul's saying, I want you to do that. I put on those glasses and see the rulers of this age who are making laws and legislations and cultural moves that show that Christianity is problematic in our culture, they are coming to nothing. They are coming to nothing. The problem is the lag time, right? You know, it's always the lag time in Christianity. After you have suffered a little while, uh, how much is that? Oh, just till Jesus comes back. Okay, you know. <laughs> little while. <laughs> but the point of the Bible, the story of the Bible is suffer now, Glory later. Could I have some glory? No. What about a little bit of... And you see the Corinthian problem? Could we have the glory now? Can we try and ape the culture and how we do church? Can we try and be impressive? Can we try and be divided? Can we be sexually liberated? Now, can we have a bit of glory now? And Paul says, that's coming to nothing. That is coming to nothing and Paul, he uses the royal we for himself. And you see we, when he's talking about we speak this, we speak, he's talking about himself, the Apostle Paul. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. It's not only that there's a new age to which has come to us, it was promised from eternity past. We declare God's mystery Wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Several of the rulers, no, none of the rulers of this age understood it. It means the wisest ones didn't understand it. The most influential ones didn't understand it. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had they would not have crucified the Lord 
of glory. Let that sit heavy on you. Let that sit heavy on you. That the cross contained the Lord of glory. And no one understands that unless God has revealed that mystery to them because it's been hidden. The smartest university lecturer in philosophy will not get it. But the average bloke who's been living a terrible life and needs some help and ends up in a church has his eyes opened and Jesus is glorious to him. It hurts him when he sees someone on Channel 10 scoff Jesus. Because Jesus is glorious. And one day we have to face him in his glory. And the rulers of this age will understand it. And they will be ashamed of their part in crucifying him. And if it's true of Jesus, it's true of you. That if Jesus is your glory... Don't expect the rulers of this age to think you're right on. Don't chase it. It's a category error. It's this age or the age to come, the new age. They don't meet and cross and merge, and that's what the Corinthian problem was. Can we have some of the good stuff of Christianity and merge it with some of the good stuff of this age, put them together and make a new version Paul says, no. It's divided between this age and that age. It's divided between suffer and glory. It's divided between a, a wisdom that belongs to this world and God's wisdom. It's divided between a wisdom that you can find out at any university uh, department you want and a wisdom that has to be revealed to you by God. That's why you can't will some, someone to become a Christian. It feels like sometimes it's so hard for someone to become a Christian today because they're so far away from thinking about what anything is to do with Christianity. People aren't walking past Bustleton Baptist Church going, hey, if I never go to church, that's the one I'm never going to. They're just not seeing it, right? They don't see it. It's not on their radar. This age is on their radar. This city is on their radar. And we feel the pressure, because we're sitting in that pressure as we talk about this tonight, aren't we? Uh, I wrote... Yeah, someone wrote a book called Dean of the Bad Guys, yeah. Um, and in, uh, the church is chided for being on the wrong side of history over sexuality matters or over our conviction about the exclusivity of Jesus. And it makes us feel like we're struck in that, stuck in that drab, dreary, beasles, that old, crusty city, where glitzy old coma is the future and we're sort of being left behind. It feels like that around many issues. But it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. I wrote somewhere, I'll put it the next slide. The temptation to identify primarily with the old city never goes away. I don't know what your pressure point is for you. When Paul asks, where's the philosopher of this age, the answer might come back, living right next door. The wise person of work the person at work who seems to have it all together and all the answers and your life seems a struggle. 
What about the wise person? That may be your lovely secular neighbours waving you off to church on Sunday morning while they sit on the balcony drinking coffee and reading the paper and you think to yourself, why does that look easier? Not a Bustleton Baptist, it's a, I hear it's great. You've got a very good advertisement for your church here, talked to me earlier today. So, And what you get is that other city looking at us and going, I've got a great plan for your life. <laughs> so here's the other thing. You're always being discipled by something. And the problem in Corinth was that they were being discipled away from Jesus by a discipleship program that looked really impressive. When Providence, um, you know, anyone know Rory Shiner, Providence Church, City, we were talking about this one day at staff, and he said, we've got a lot of second service Christians coming on Sunday nights to our night service, when they only had a night service, he said, because they go somewhere else Sunday morning and they give and serve there and they come on Sunday night for the show. <laughs> That's Rory's preaching. He's, got so, he's smiley and got great hair. He's, I can't compete. But, um, and then he said this, actually every Christian is a second service Christian. Because there's a discipleship program Monday to Saturday in our world that is so enticing and so beguiling and it's so shiny and it's so ulcoma and people have to get up and go to, into it every day and we make decisions based on it and we carry it around in our back pocket and scroll it. We don't have to go to Perth or Manhattan. It comes to us. And it's incessant, isn't it? I've got a great pair of green boots that I bought recently, which I did not wear to Harry Styles. And I looked at them once on the website. And it threw up every ad on Facebook and Instagram. It's just like, okay, I'll buy them if you leave me alone. You know? I justified buying them, don't worry about that. <laughs> See, the drawing power of the secular... The drawing power of the secular discipleship program has such an immediately vivid and compelling nature that it sticks to us and it's hard to shake. It is spiritual napalm for the souls. It burns us. And the problem in Corinth was that they were getting burned by it. The discipleship program on offer in Corinth was so attractive. And it was leading to all these issues in their church. And Paul is saying... What are you doing? And he brings them down to earth with a bump, doesn't he? Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Not none, but not many. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If you go into the city today and say, if there is a God, which kind of people would he choose? They would say, the shiny people, the people who have got it on, the people who know, who recycle enough or whatever. And he says, the rubbish. The rubbish. God chose, God chose, God chose. 
looked around and went, I'll have that. I'll have that. I'll have that. And those were us. If you can't come to God saying, I'm foolish, weak and lowly, then the new age isn't for you. <laughs> the new age isn't for you. You'll want to stay in the old city. You'll want to stay in the bright place because you want those things. The dirty little secret, of course, is that the good life in this age is actually lived among God's people. And what we're going to do unpack in the next two days is how rich and deep and good it is to belong to God's people and also to show that bright, shiny or coma is a little bit of a facade. It's not holding up very well. <laughs> and when you look behind it, there's not as much going on there behind it as they like to make you think. We live in an age of massive anxiety, mental health issues, sexual abuse. People are afraid. This age is not paying out when they pull the lever like they thought it would. And we have a message of hope. And we're going to look at that tomorrow and on Sunday. How about we pray? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us, not because we are lovely, but because you are the all-loving God who's been in loving relationship within the Father, Son, and Spirit since eternity, and you've chosen to bring us into that life through the death and resurrection of your Son, the foolishness of the message of the cross being preached, the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and to move us from the old age to the new age, even while we live here in our Corinth, our Sydney, our Melbourne or our Bustleton. We pray that we would be enriched in every way this weekend as we speak wisdom into each other's lives about the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.